And so this morning, they asked me to speak on, on passionate service. And so um, that's, that's kind of when we look at the definition of the word here, you'll, you'll understand why that's, that's uh, uh, an interesting concept to jump into. Uh, and so, but I am going to take some time. I don't think that I sent over an adequate space or information with the introduction part. So you're going to need the inside cover of, uh, of your flyer there for uh, introduction. I'm going to give you some definitions. I'm a big definer of words. I think it's important that we know. It drives my wife crazy. Uh, and she says, you get up there having your, in, your, you get up there having your definition party all by yourself. And then, uh, and then after that, it's pretty good. And so... Uh, and so, but if we don't know what we're talking about, then it's kind of hard to build on it. And so, uh, I'll try to get through that as quickly as I can. I realize it may be a little more interesting to me than it is to you, but, uh, but we need to establish some things as we get started. So let's, uh, have a word of prayer. And so I hear a little bit of a ring. I don't know if y'all can hear it back there or not uh, up under the echo, uh, the echo chamber back there. That's much better. Thank you. Uh, and so but let's pray as we get started, because it is going to take us, if you can find Daniel chapter 5, but it's going to take us a little while to get there. I'm just going to lay out some things definitively uh, before we start, and let's pray as we get started and ask the Lord to meet with us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this week, Lord, the information, the scripture that you've given, the practical application. Lord, we've had ingrained in us to do ministry as far as outreach especially goes uh, based entirely upon what Jesus told his disciples to do one time in the New Testament, rather than what he practically lived on a daily basis throughout his entire ministry. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to be inspired this morning throughout this week to reevaluate how we approach reaching others. Uh, Lord, not just reaching them, but developing them uh, so that your work is done. May we follow your model. Lord, may we... Uh, understand that we need to be energetic and passionate in what we do for you, but we need to have that passion, uh, Lord, curtailed and guided by the Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that you'd bless in this hour. I pray that you'd give us what we need, and I pray most of all that you'd be honored and glorified by it and by the results of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you look at passionate service, I titled this Passionate Service Train Record Triumph because uh, of this reason. When you look at the definition of the word passion, uh, the word means the impression or effect of an external agent upon a body. It means that which is suffered or received. It also means, secondly, the susceptibility of impressions from external agents. So we're talking about what is going on externally and how it impacts me or affects me. And then it has to do with suffering emphatically uh, as in specifically by definition of the word, the last suffering of Jesus. Uh, and so it is his response uh, guided by the Spirit of God as, he, as our God gave himself for our sin and his body is brutalized. Uh, that passion uh, is bearing down upon him. Now, so you take the word passion and then you look at passionate. And this was really interesting. I, I want to say that I was somewhat surprised, but then when I kind of look and evaluate my own life, I guess not so much. Uh, and so I, I'm, the word passionate, the very first part of the definition is this, easily moved to anger. Now, I'm generally pretty mellow. I frustrate people in my church sometimes because I'll be really long-suffering with someone that's not getting it or coming along, even if they're kind of pushing me. Um, and have a kind of a rebellious spirit or attitude, and they're maybe in a role where that can't be tolerated for too long. I tend to be overbearing. I'll ride with someone until the Holy Spirit just convinces me that God's done here, that this is their opportunities up. And so that sometimes I frustrate some folks in my church for that. So I'm really patient until I'm not. And when I'm not, it's generally not pretty. Uh, and that, I'm not saying that because that's a good way to be. I'm just telling you that's, that's my nature. Be, I'm my, by nature, I'm very introverted. I'm very quiet. It's difficult for me to have long conversations with people that I don't know. If I go to spiritual leadership conference out in Lancaster, I am far more likely to be found talking to an average church member in the corner somewhere than I am to other pastors. That's just my nature. It's just it's my, uh, where, I, where I just kind of drift to. Um, 
but at the same time, um, you know, there's, there's this element of when something comes in and has to be dealt with, I can be really patient, really long-suffering, really quiet, or I, it's just it's kind of an explosion at times. And so I've, I've, the Lord's helped me learn to temper that over the years, though I'm not always successful. Uh, I'm not nearly as, as destructive as I was in my 30s and 40s and, so, uh, and early 40s. So God's helped me. Uh, but, you know, that, that's beware of quiet people. You know, that is a, really, that is a very real thing. Uh, you know, that person that you think is a quiet pushover is, might be the one that's going to kill you before it's all said and done. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, but passionate, easily moved to anger. Uh, passionate people aren't always uh, loud. Sometimes they're quiet. My wife and I are opposites in that regard. I'm very quiet and reserved. She is extremely outgoing. She tempers herself because she's a pastor's wife and she feels like she can't be her true self or uh, people won't respect her. When we were in college, the college that we went to was an old Catholic convent. And whenever I would uh, be coming from the dining hall down to up by the all the way at the front door and there was a long hallway, then there was a security desk and a hallway that went this way. And then the hallway continued all the way down to the entrance of the chapel. Her and her group of friends, I could hear and distinctively pick out her voice all the way from the other end of the, hospital, uh, the hallway. They were just loud. And I would say, why are you so loud? She said, I'm not loud, I'm passionate. Uh, or uh, I would make her really mad at me. Why are you so mad? And she'd, she'd talk loud and she'd kind of get, what are you mad about? I'm not, what do you, what do you think I'm mad? And, I said, and she said, I'm not, and I said, oh, okay. And she's from the island of Puerto Rico. And so we give her a lot of hard, we, we tease her about that all the time. Uh, and, and, and she'll say, I'm, I'm not mad, I'm Puerto Rican, or I'm not loud, I'm Puerto Rican. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we kind of kid about that. But in truth, you know, I'm really the one that's sharper. We'll give her a hard time, but I'm generally the one that's more guilty about, uh, about snapping. Now, there is a time as a pastor that you have to take a strong hand. Um, I have a, a fellow in our church who at the time, several years ago, was leading a ministry and he, he was really going through some difficult times that led to some really tragic times in his life. Uh, and at the time, I'm trying to work with him. I'm trying to salvage things. And, and uh, I'm, like I said, in most cases, I'm really patient. There are a few things that I have zero tolerance for. Um, a, a back-talking child is one of them. Uh, I just, I've got, I've got, it just instantly makes my blood boil. And so uh, we never tolerated it in our children. Um, it, they were never allowed to sass. They were attitude was everything in our house. And so, matter of fact, when I, and I'll probably say more about this afternoon. But when our children were real small, two, three, four years old, even maybe a little younger than that, spankings were supreme for behavior. By the time they were about five, we rarely spanked them for behavior. It was almost always about attitude, not exclusively, but almost. By that time, a look was enough to correct behavior. Um, and so. By the way, I can't, men I can't remember a time in a store ever that any of our four children embarrassed us. And so, and the Bible tells us that, you know, if, uh, uh, and so, but moving on. Uh, when we look at the word passionate, or this, this brother I'm telling you about, he, he comes to me one day, and he had been in the office, and we had several conversations where I very lovingly, tenderly, gently tried to encourage him, correct him. Um, keep him motivated. And so finally, we had a meeting, and I just determined before we went into the meeting, uh, it's time to kind of drop a hammer on this guy. He's in his mid-30s. Um, and so he comes in, and, and he was weeping before he left. Um, and I don't think that he had ever had his pastor, certainly not this one or anywhere else that he had served, kind of be that hard on him. But, but he was acting like, a child. His mentality was like a child. And so in that case, it wasn't a, a bad reaction. It was a calculated investment. Um, and it, it worked, and he straightened up, and he received it. He knew I loved him. He knew uh, that it was what he needed. He thanked me for it several times afterward, uh, and it helped him for a considerable amount of time to do better. And, and uh, so we get through it, and then my uncle was in our church at the time, and he uh, is an evangelist with a prison ministry. So he's used to dealing with inmates, and, and he is 
you have to understand in his world, he's dealing with convicts all the time. So uh, he's calling me about somebody that he's discipling or working with. And like one day he's like, man, you got to get this guy out of here. Just kick him out of the church. Then the next day it's like, he's a great, he's doing great. He's totally turned around. And then a week later, oh, you got to get rid of him. He's got to, it's just constantly like that. So, uh, you know, Joey, or this guy's been spending a lot of time with him. And, uh, and he's been spending time, a lot of time with him, investing in him. He's using him. He's preaching with him in jail. He's trying to keep him encouraged. And, uh, and they've had some very direct conversations as well. And one day he looks at my uncle and he says, man, you and Pastor are really passionate. Translation, you both have a really angry streak at me sometimes. And so, uh, and, and he said, how do you guys even get along? And he said, well, we're passionate about the same thing. Uh, our passion is about the gospel, it's about reaching people, it's about developing you, and you know, it, and sometimes you need, uh, sometimes we need someone that, that is close enough to us that they can speak bluntly and directly to us, not that they're trying to injure us, but you know, surgery sometimes is necessary, and it always requires recovery, and it's never pleasant, but sometimes it's life-saving. And so, passion by definition First and foremost, passionate, easily moved to anger. Now, no pastor can survive long or be effective long if they're easily moved to anger. That's not what we're trying to communicate here. But if you look the word up, that's what you're going to get. The second thing is highly excited. Now, I am never highly excited outwardly. My son was talking about the Cowboys earlier. Uh, and so I'm, I told my wife, it's, it's, she just knows. I, I, I follow baseball from a distance. I follow basketball from a distance. Uh, when the Cowboys are on, I'm glued, okay? I never get to watch. It's very rare. I shouldn't say never. Maybe two or three games a year I get to watch live. They, they play on Sunday. They, you know, they're play, I'm, I'm, so I record it, um, and then whenever I've got time, I watch it unless they get crushed and then I don't waste my time. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, you know, with his disciple that's thinking they're going to get killed this week at Minnesota without Dak. And so it's just that they're going down. And so I'm braced for it. I told my wife, I told the score when I got home from church and I'm like, yeah, they're, it's closer than I thought it'd be, but they're down. Uh, and then, but I watched and I'm like, you know, and then they get to the end, and they've got this. They got lucky with a penalty against the other team, and they made a third and sixteen, a third and eleven, and then Zeke gets the ball, and there's three guys in front of him, and he buries his head through, plows through two of them, gets the first down, sets up the winning touchdown pass, uh, and I'm just like inside. I'm like ah, loud outside by myself in the den. That was good. That that's about as excitable as I get. I'm just not that guy I, i'm just i'm just i'm not now my wife she's screaming she, she don't even understand what's going on and if she's watching it with me she's screaming and jumping up and down and uh and cheering and so it's highly excited but highly excited doesn't always manifest itself in the way that we think it does the third part of the definition is this it is expressing strong emotion now, there's a lot of ways that we express strong emotion and sometimes it's healthy and sometimes it's not and so we have to be compelled, or we are compelled and ruled by intense emotion or by strong feeling if we are passionate and the Lord's not a part of the equation. The modern definition of the word means showing or caused, uh, a showing or caused by feelings or a strong belief. And so if I'm passionate about something, I believe strongly about it. So what is it that we believe strongly about this morning? I would say this, that a passionate person has very strong feelings about something or a strong belief in something. Not only that, and so all successful people are passionate, but not all passionate people are successful. You will not find someone in the business world, the political world, the sports world, or the ministry world that's successful that's not passionate. Now, does that mean that you're not going to find somebody that's not easily angered? That's not the point. The point is, is that they believe strongly in. I will say this, if, I, if I'm easily angered and I don't learn to let God help me get a handle on that, it's going to destroy me. That's the title, train record triumph. If you're passionate this morning, 
It is going to drive you and it's going to inspire you to exceed to your potential or it is going to destroy everything that you try to do. There's not really any middle ground. Passionate people are required to make, to make things move forward. Passion drives one to excellence or destruction. Absalom was destroyed by his passion. His father had a lot of negative input into his life and a lot of bad decisions and not doing things right. And we don't have time to get into all of that, but, but he was passionate. He was passionate about defending his sister's honor. He was passionate about ascending to his father's throne. He was passionate, but it destroyed him. On the other hand, Paul's passion drove him to excel. I don't think that you could take a good look at the Apostle Paul and not understand that this man was passionate about the gospel. And his past passion to destroy the gospel caused him to realize the debt that he owed. And when he says, I am a debtor, and he gives the list, you have to understand, I don't, I don't believe that Paul ever got past the idea of the, the, the people's families and lives that he destroyed. I don't think he ever got over that. Now, he got over it in the sense of it wasn't a hindrance to him. God, he understood God's forgiveness and God's power. But I'm just saying that he never forgot that. And he never allowed himself to not serve Jesus Christ better than he served the Old Testament law. He was passionate about it. Uh, passion, and, and here's the question this morning. Am I passionate about ministry? And we would all think, man, that yeah, we've got to be passionate about ministry. But I would argue this morning that our passion for ministry should in no way compare to our passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. I can be passionate about ministry and not walk with God. But I can't be passionate about Jesus and not be passionate about his ministry. Is my focus on my Savior or on my work? See, when I'm passionate about my work, I'm passionate about me. When I'm passionate about Jesus, I'm passionate about what Jesus is passionate about. Where's our focus at? And I think so often we have just been indoctrinated, especially if you're my age or older, in that realm of our fundamental Baptist movement, uh, then it is hard. There are things hardwired into my thinking that it is a struggle to, even what I can intellectually and spiritually come to see, it's hard for me to go there because it goes against what was poured into me when I was in my teens and early 20s. And so when we, when we understand that our passion should be for the Lord Jesus Christ. If my passion, if I'm passionate about, and you think about, you think about Jeremiah for a moment. If Jeremiah was passionate about his ministry, he would have died feeling himself an abject failure. Never one convert. But he was passionate about God. He did what God called him to do. He completely fulfilled the ministry that God gave him. It wasn't measured in numbers for success. It wasn't measured in how many people showed up. or It was measured, did I faithfully do what God called me to do? And I stay passionate for my Savior while I was doing it. And I, I used to be that pastor that if enough people weren't here five minutes before the service started and you couldn't find me, I was either at the front door or the side door with my nose pressed against the glass wondering where, like if I'm standing there looking, it's going to make them come in. Feeling like, what a failure. And over the years, it's been a slow process too. And it's not that I don't ever look out the door anymore. Uh, but, uh, but praise the Lord, he's brought me to a point where I've just come to accept, you know, whatever, God, you give me whatever you want me to have and who you want me to have. And sometimes it's what I can handle. Sometimes it's how much time does this one individual need from me. If I get too many at one time, I can't give them what they need. Um, and so we well, want to look at that with the thought of passion and how does that translate into uh, and where do we see that really in the scripture outside of the suffering of Christ and just some, um, you know, kind of we see it, but it's not spoken 
out plainly. I think we see it spoken out plainly in the life of Daniel. So in Daniel chapter number 5 this morning, and uh, I'm, I'm, given the crowd that we're in, I'm going to make some assumptions for time's sake that we, uh, that we understand the story, that we, we kind of get a lot about the back. So I'm going to waste or spend a lot of time, I shouldn't say waste, uh, going through things that I think that we already get so that we can kind of move on to the meat of this. But in Daniel chapter 5 and verses 11 and 12, what we find here is, is this. There is a man in thy kingdom, uh, as, as Daniel now stands before Belshazzar, and he's already risen to prominence once with, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, and then he's been shoved back to the back, back burner and forgotten again. Uh, and they've got their problem, and we know the hand comes from right. There is a man in thy kingdom, of the holy gods, uh, they didn't understand that it was one God, but Daniel understood it was one God. So they're at the kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father, uh, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Uh, now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. I want you to turn over. He again, uh, Belteshazzar, Belshazzar dies, and then uh, and then Darius comes to the forefront. He again has been cast aside, and then in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3, and it pleased Darius to set over uh, the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents whom Daniel was first, uh, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage, then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, notice why, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over his whole realm. Now, when we look at this this morning, we understand that uh, that Daniel has gone through some extraordinary circumstances. We understand that what he did and how he stood up for truth and what was right uh, is it should be inspiring to generations, especially of young people, that you can take a stand and you can make a difference, and you don't have to wait until you're older to make a, a, an impact for the cause of Christ. Uh, Daniel just determined that whatever it costs me, I'm going to do right. And you stop and you think, here's a young man, a teenager who has been stripped away from his homeland, who's been torn away from his family, who is apparently the, the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, uh, earlier uh, of them being carried away and made eunuchs and set uh, in, this, in this realm, his, his, all of the things that were valuable to him, everything, personally, nationally, and familiar is stripped away from him. It's gone. What's his attitude? Is it anger? I don't see any. Is it bitterness? I don't see that either. Is it frustration? Is it, God, why, how could you let this happen? No. What we know about Daniel is that whether he was in the forefront or whether he was forgotten in the background, he prayed three times a day in a way that everyone could see. And he wasn't showing off himself. He was just letting everyone know, I'm committed to God. Amen. And I'm passionate about God. And whatever God brings into my life is acceptable to me. I don't have to be in the king's court to be fulfilled. And I don't have to be, uh, you know, uh, the one that's the hero of the story to be fulfilled. What I have to be is on my knees communicating with my Father in heaven. He was passionate about that, and that was what defined him, what made him great. The spirit of the God was in him. And even the pagans looked at him and said, what they, could, they, they, could, they didn't even understand, but they knew that he was connected to God, in their mind, the gods, in a powerful way that they had never seen before and that no one else ever understood and they defined it, and the scripture tells us in these two occasions that the reason is because an excellent spirit was in him. In spite of everything, his spirit was excellent. Now, what does excellent mean? The word excellent here means preeminent, surpassing. It means extreme or extraordinary. 
Daniel's spirit was extraordinary. Everything drove him, what made people drawn to him, what caused them not to forget him was that he wasn't average. And what wasn't average about him wasn't his physical presence. It was his excellent spirit. The one that God wanted to draw him, that, to use him. Now I want to say a couple of things, and we're going to get right into the body of this. I'm going to show you a few pictures. I've never done this in 25 years of ministry. I've never uh, shown you some of the pictures. I'm going to show you in just a moment. But my son asked me to. Uh, this isn't one of those I was talking about, but it's the right picture to put up. I want to make the point here this morning. When we think about excellent, we think about talent. We think about extraordinary talent. Listen, the most talented teams don't win or rarely win. When, when football season ends, whoever wins a Super Bowl, it is more likely than not that it will not be the most talented team. It's going to be the extraordinary team. It's going to be the team that excelled, not in their talent, but in their spirit. The camaraderie, the commitment, the study, the, the honing their craft, not relying on God-given talent, but putting in the work because they love the game. You know, a lot of great players walk away not because they've lost their physical ability, but because they've lost the desire to put in the time that made them great. And they want to leave before that's diminished. So I want to make this point before we really jump into this, because I don't want us to leave thinking that to be excellent, I have to be better than someone else. Because that's just not biblically true. And it, and it has no bearing on whether God finds value in what we're bringing uh, to the table uh, it is, I am an anti-relativism person generally. I, I, you know, the fact that the world buys into relative truth and the things like speak your truth drives me insane. Truth is absolute. There is no wavering in it. Most important things in life are absolute. There's no wavering. There's no negotiation. However, excellence is relative. I was in the break walk, looking across the parking lot and I look up and there goes Sam who's been being discipled now and in church for three, four months walking across the parking lot having emptied the trash taking it over to the spigot to rinse it out. That is excellent. Now, if he does that 10 years from now, that's still excellent. But what's more excellent is if 10 years from now he's doing that and he's got four or five guys sitting here beside him that he's led to the Lord under discipling. But that's not a fair expectation of him three months in. So when we talk about excellence, we're talking about it being relative to our growth and to our potential. So this picture, go back to that first picture, Billy, if you would. That is the work of my five-year-old granddaughter, Jules, Brother David's oldest daughter. Now, no art critic would look at that and say, that's great. Her name is written at the top. I don't know if you can make it out, but her J, her, well, some of her letters are backwards. But for someone that's never been to preschool, never been to school at the point that she drew this, that's pretty excellent. For a four and a half to five year old. If you would go to the next one, brother. That picture hangs when you walk into our house on the right. That is an India art or an India ink pencil artwork. The, the painting itself is special to me because of a couple of reasons. Number one, it is my great grandfather's home on my mom's side, my mom's grandpa, her mom's dad, who that's his old home place. They had nine children. They raised them there. Um, his wife died in 1969. I was two years old. I never really even knew her. Her name was Daisy Boone. My daughter a couple of years ago bought me a genealogy thing, and whenever I started tracing the Boone line back, when I got to Jonathan Boone, it had a big thing flashing on a historical figure. He's the brother of Daniel Boone. 
the, the son of Squire Boone who immigrated from southern England in the 1600s uh, to a, a Quaker to Pennsylvania uh, who, at any rate, that's just kind of a family connection back. But my uncle that painted that at the time or that drew that, he was 17 years old. And so he drew that picture when he was 17 years old. Now, for a 17-year-old, I think that's pretty excellent. And, and he was very talented. But it's excellent to us. It has a lot of meaning to us. You understand what I'm trying to say this morning? Excellence isn't to be gauged by what the world considers to be excellent. Excellence is understanding that Jesus Christ, that our Creator, has put in us some ability. And when I develop and reach the potential of that ability, that's excellence. Now, I'll say a little bit more about this in a little bit, but understand this morning that not everybody in this room has the same potential. Few, if anybody in here, is going to preach as well and with as much wisdom as Brother Glasser. And I'm just saying, I'm trying to buff him up. I've heard a lot of preaching over the years, and uh, and and I, uh, you know, would gladly rearrange my schedule to hear him again. Not everyone has the same potential. Now, as a pastor who's passionate, who sometimes can maybe get a little overly excited, frustrated, or angry about someone that's not reaching my expectation for them. If my expectation exceeds the potential that God put within them, my passion will destroy them. My job, your job as pastors, is not to push them to, and frustrate them to get somewhere that they are not capable of getting. If I were to take Sam out and say, okay, Sam, tonight I'm going to give you a crash course on preaching. You're preaching a revival to a thousand people starting on Sunday. You've got three days to pray up and prepare. I'm setting him up for failure. My ambition for him, my, my passion for him is going to destroy his life. That's not his potential yet. So our job is to discern what's the potential. And so I want to be excellent about that. I want to see and understand that helping him become excellent doesn't mean helping him get to where somebody that's been saved and committed to Christ for 30 years is in a week. And he's not a lesser Christian. I, I tell you what, he's already a better Christian than a lot of Christians that I know that have been sitting in church faithfully for 30 years because he's committed and hungry for the Word of God and to allow God to help him to grow. And so I would say this about excellence. Excellence opens unseen, unanticipated opportunities. Now, I've never done this before, and my son didn't direct. He kind of hinted around and asked me, are you going to tell anything about, about your time in the Marine Corps? And I've never shown these pictures. So I, I took these pictures. They're pictures of pictures from my phone, so they're not good quality. Um, and so, but I, I do want to say this. When I went to the military, I'm a third-generation Marine. My grandfather fought in Bougainville and Guam in World War II. My dad joined the Corps when he was 17. It destroyed him. He was way too young. Uh, he served six and a half years. He got out in 1965. Uh, I, was, I turned 21 in boot camp. So I went to Bible college for a couple of years. I got hurt on the job. My grandmother died. I got really discouraged. I didn't see a path forward financially. And so uh, I always wanted to know if I had what it took. And so I made a horrible decision, honestly, although it's hard to look back at it and see how it's impacted my life and think it's been horrible. Uh, but no one would have ever counseled me to leave Bible college to go to the military. But it was the only way out I could see. It was the only path forward. Uh, and so that's what I did. I went down to the recruiting station, and uh, I signed up, and they give you all these tests and tell you to take all these tests. And honestly, I didn't really do that well in school. Uh, it was a struggle at times. And uh, but I did well on those tests, and so I essentially could have chosen almost virtually anything that I wanted to do, and even then I didn't have the right counselor in my life to say, uh, you know, pick something smart. 
Um, and so I thought I did. I picked communications, and in my mind, I'm thinking satellite communication. I'll learn some techie thing, and uh, it'll be awesome. And I can ride around in the Humvee and and you know set up satellite dishes. And so I signed a communications contract, and what I signed up for was to be the idiot that's carrying the radio in combat. Uh, that's the that the only person that's a higher priority target than him is the guy with the flamethrower on his back. And so brilliant. And so I'm sitting in boot camp at San Diego, and, and we're in a classroom setting, and this master gunnery sergeant comes in with more stripes on his sleeve than I've seen. And he says, I need to see recruit Crips. And the drill instructor looks over and barks at me, and I stand up at attention, sir, yes, sir, and the whole nine yards, and he says, go with master gunnery, or master gunnery sergeant so-and-so. I'm thinking the whole way to the guy's office, what in the world have I done? You know, I haven't been here that long. It's been about five or six weeks in. And he sits me down in the office and he said, son, you mean to tell me that you are almost 21 years old and you've never had a, a traffic ticket? No, sir, I've never even been pulled over. He said, you don't drink? No. You don't smoke? No. You have any tattoos? No. He said, I'm looking for guys that we can give top secret security clearances to. He said, so I'm going to offer you a way out of your contract. If you don't want to, it's fine. You can keep your contract. You can go out to the infantry and you can carry your radio. <laughs> or you can pick any language that you want from a number that they offered and you can go to language school for a year and you can go to Intel and you can decipher radio messages or you can go to the White House I thought about it for a minute and I said White House that really was not a smartest decision because if I was really smart I would have said I want to learn Spanish so I knew what my wife is saying to me all the time whenever she's mad at me right <laughs> and so uh, I said White House he said let me explain what that means is uh, you may be at the White House or you may be at HMX-1, which is the Marine helicopters that fly into the White House lawn and carry the president back up to Camp David out to Andrews Air Force Base to Air Force One. Uh, or it's, it's either the White House, HMX-1, or Camp David. He said, I can't tell you which one it'll be. It just depends on where they need you. Uh, you've got to go through regular infantry training. At that time, it didn't have its own job designation. Now it does. Uh, and I said, that sounds great to me. And so he put me in the program, and I didn't know what all was going on behind the scenes, but I've got FBI agents going to my coaches and school teachers and, um, and employers, places that I've worked, and they're doing interviews, and they're doing background checks, and they're thoroughly investigating and vetting my background and my history. Did I lie? Did I tell the truth? Is my record clean? Am I trustworthy? Uh, and I'm just a dumb kid. And so I go through boot camp, I go to infantry school, I go to Marine Barracks 8th and I in Washington, D.C. It's the oldest post in the Marine Corps. Uh, the Washington Navy Yard uh, is right down the road in the Latrobe Gate. Is, when you go through that gate, uh, there's a Marine Guard shack. On the right-hand side is a hotel for admirals and military dignitaries from other countries. To the right, down that is Admiral's Row. Every person that lives in that housing is an admiral, and to the left is the chief of naval operations, the highest-ranking admiral in the Navy, the, the number one admiral in the Navy. I stood post there for about six months. Thanksgiving Day one day, the CNO's wife comes out with a plate of cookies. Hey, PFC Crips. Hey, Lance Corporal Crips. You want some cookies? So, yes, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> November in Washington can be kind of cold. And then January rolls around, and I'm expecting it to be into the spring or early summer before my clearance gets approved, and and um, it gets approved early. We're supposed to get married in February. I've only seen her for about six hours in May after boot camp from when I left in February and for 10 days in November. So anytime that somebody from Camp David, we called it the Hill, anytime somebody from the Hill came down to the barracks in D.C., it was a big deal. So the company first sergeant and the company gunny come down. And uh, they, they, they come down to interview the guys that they want to bring up next. They've got their clearances in, and they want to see me, and so I'm there with them. And it's kind of intimidating, honestly. Uh, you're still getting acclimated to 
you're you know less than a year in, getting close to a year in, but still, it's it's intimidating to go there. And so I I listen to them, and they're like, "We want you up. We need you up now." So I've got leave scheduled to go get married. Well, honor your leave. It's no problem. Come on. So in January the 13th or 16th, I get orders and uh, pack my sea bag, and off I go up to the mountains of northern Maryland and. Uh, drive down that road that's got all the signs out in the front of it in the National Park that say, don't come down this road or you'll be dead. Um, and drive up to the gate, and they come out and check the car with the mirrors and go through all the things. And uh, the first sergeant meets me out there, and then he takes me and introduces me and gets me acclimated into the barracks. And, uh, and that weekend is President Reagan's last visit. So we get all up in our dress blues and we go into the hangar it's raining outside so they've got everything moved inside the hangar and they're giving him these awards and mementos of his eight years in office and it's pretty awesome transition happens and president george hw bush has sworn in and uh and you know those were three years of my life that i wouldn't really i wouldn't trade anything for saw a lot of incredible people if you could brother billy show flip that and so that, that was right before I got out. That picture was actually taken in, in the Oval Office uh, right before I, I left service. And so we got to do some incredible things. Every year at Christmas, there was a, a, a Christmas party at the White House for the White House Military Office, that, which was those three units and the Air Force One crews. And uh, they took all the roping down. Uh, you can't take pictures when you take a tour. Everything's roped off. You can't sit on furniture. You can't do anything. Uh, not when you, not when you're White House staff and you go to the Christmas party. All the, all of the fetters are off. You can take pictures and you can do. All, it, was, it was pretty awesome. You can go to the next one. Uh, that is Mikhail Gorbachev, the last premier of the Soviet Union. I don't know if uh, our younger people may not really appreciate the significance of their relationship and Reagan's relationship with him, uh, but that picture was taken on the second of June in 1990. I he loved horseshoes. Uh, President Bush. Mikhail Gorbachev had never played horseshoes. First horseshoe through he ever threw, he threw a ringer. And so the Navy Seabees and, and, uh, went and they made a plaque out of it for him. Uh, and so this is, uh, this is a head of state arrival. And so this isn't a normal arrival when it's just the president. Uh, this is a head of state arrival. So what you can't see is directly in front of those Marines to their right is a flagpole. And on that flagpole is one Marine standing at the foot. He has a halyard in his left hand. And there is a flag at the top of that pole that is rolled up and it has a rubber band around it. And whenever the second that those wheels touch the tarmac, jerks a halyard, which breaks the rubber band and unfurls the president's seal. Salutes. President Bush was obsessed in catching them being a second late. So he's sitting on the helicopter looking at the Iron Lady of England and saying, watch this. Literally, that got relayed back to us. And so this is the arrival of Helmut Kohl from Germany at the time. It was on the 24th of February in 1990. If you could, Brother Billy, go to the next one. Um, and so that is Margaret Thatcher. That is on the 24th of November of 1989. And so those are official White House photographs. My first sergeant liked me, and he had connections with Richard Treffery's office, the director of military operations in the White House, and he got me a few pictures. Uh, and so I think that's the last one. And so there's one more. And so, and that, again, is Helmut Kohl's arrival, and President Bush is just standing out there and, uh, you know, bragging up the Marines and, and the sailors that are there that are taking care of his needs. He loved to shoot skeet. He loved to play tennis. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger came up and visited all the time. Uh, matter of fact, the Marine that ran the gym had won Mr. a second place in Mr. Nebraska contest before he had enlisted. And Arnold Schwarzenegger took a liking to him and found out his private address and sent him an autographed picture to his house. Chris Everett Lloyd came and played tennis all the time. And so thank you, you can take those down. So while all that, Pastor, I don't really, I, I've never shown those before. If my son hadn't said something, I wouldn't show them today. Um, my wife gets on to me for not talking more about it. But to me, you know, the guys went, to Fallujah and places like that are the ones really that deserve a lot more attention. But I will say this, excellence, I wasn't the smartest kid, but I worked hard. 
And whether it was at my bus ministry in college or if it was at my job at a warehouse overnight or if it was wherever it was, if it was cleaning bathrooms and setting up classrooms at church, mopping the gym floor, I did it to the best of my ability. A lot of people have more talent, but I wasn't going to let them work harder. And I'm just saying this morning that excellence opens unseen, unanticipated opportunities. If you want to have the Lord provide you with opportunity, have an excellent spirit. And that's not about what you do. It's the attitude with which you do it. Daniel's spirit was excellent. Now I'm going to just jump into this and I'm going to have to give you this really quickly because we're about out of time and lunch is ready and Brother Will, if I go about five minutes long, is that okay? Number one this morning, have an extraordinary relationship with God. Excellent. Remember, it's preeminent. It's surpassing uh, other, or, or expectations. It's extreme or it's extraordinary. Have an extraordinary relationship with God. If you don't want your passion to cause a train wreck and you want it to lead to God's blessing and, and a fruitful ministry, have an extraordinary relationship with God. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how well oiled your machine is if you don't walk with God. The frills don't matter. Eloquence doesn't matter. I'm not saying those things are unimportant. I'm not saying we shouldn't hone our craft. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn to do them better. I'm saying if we can do all of that thing, all of those things better than anybody in our, in our world and still fail if we're not walking with God. Right. Ministry will crush you, but it cannot even begin to challenge God. Do you not think that Daniel was crushed when he was thrown, made a eunuch in? And made to eat, challenged to eat food he didn't want to eat. Realizing he'd never see his family again and that he would never have a family of his own. It's crushing. Ministry's crushing. If we try to do things in our own power, in our own spirit, it will destroy us and it will cause us to destroy others. Why? Because in our passion, we're going to start lashing out. We're not going to give the word of God. We're going to go into attack mode and we're going to start counseling and correcting and doing all those things from the pulpit instead of just preaching the word of God and letting the spirit deal with people. Two thoughts about that. Number one, relationship should set the agenda. Relationship should set the agenda. My relationship with Jesus must set the agenda for my ministry. The second thing I would say is that relationship will sustain an adversity. When adversity comes, it is my walk with God that will sustain me. When I left my first pastorate in Arkansas, we were there for, like I said, almost 10 years. And for 10 years, I didn't know whether or not from one week to the next there would be a paycheck, even though the church had gone from 40 to about 140. For 10 years, we drugged people kicking and screaming. They were, letting, they were willing to let us do whatever we wanted to do. They just weren't going to help us. And so we did. And it was exhausting. And it was a great place for our children because they were isolated. I'll say a lot more about that this afternoon. But the reality is, is that it could have been crushing. When you come under verbal attack in your parking lot in front of a group of men at schools being, and your men don't defend you against the one that's attacking you, that's crushing. I'm just telling you this morning that the burden of everyone in your church's lives is impossible for you to carry. It will crush you, but it will never even cause Jesus to break a sweat. What's my focus on? Is my focus on being frustrated that I'm not able? Is my focus on the frustration that they're not rising to the occasion? Is my focus on I'm just walking with God and this is his problem? I'm just his ambassador. Relationship will sustain in adversity. Number two this morning, have an extraordinary resolve for God. If I am not resolved that I'm going to do what God has called me to do, regardless of what goes on around me, I won't do it for long. 
And with this, I would say this, never let good enough be good enough. That, that is something that's a pet peeve of mine. It just really drives me crazy, that the mindset of, oh, that's good enough. Now, I understand the first time that I came here, the walls were purple. Yeah, he told you about the, the seesaw pews, right? I'm a very ornery person, okay? I'm the person that would see the seesaw pews, and I would pay somebody to coax a light, skinny person to sit on this end so that I could come unsuspectingly on the other side and plop myself down to see how high I could launch them. And so that's just kind of my nature. And so, but what I'm saying is this. Those purple walls in the early days of Arise Baptist Church were excellent. Those crummy pews were excellent. Why? Because it was the very best that they could do with what they had in the time that God had allowed them to be here. Now, if the walls were still that color and there was four or $500,000 in the bank, it wouldn't be excellent. I had a guy, when I first, when I assumed my first pastorate, I walk in and he's leading the school. He's probably the only Bible college graduate the church has ever had. He rules supreme. I mean, he just, everybody thinks he's wonderful. And, and he was a nice guy. He's still a nice guy, uh, but but his but he led the choir, he led the singing, he led the school, and his attitude was with the choir. He had the choir up there. He's like, oh, you know, here's this part, here's this part. Oh, you're not getting it. Just just sing watermelon. That'll be good enough. And and if we gotta go into school, and I I got there, I started teaching a Bible class because it was Christian school. There wasn't any Bible being taught, and so I started teaching a Bible class, uh, and then. Uh, you know, I try to make sure they had a good time in the Bible class and trying to get acquainted with the kids in the school. And I'd send them back down to the learning center. It was an old AC school. And, uh, and, and I, you know, 45 minutes later, I'd go down there and the kids are all up walking. They're still on break. They've been, they haven't done any work for the last hour and a half. He's got his feet propped up on the desk. And he looks at me across the room as I walk in and he says, get them all hyped and riled up in that Bible class and send them back down here like this. What do you expect me to do with them? And I said, I don't know what you've been doing with him, but I know what I'm going to do with you. And so he was no longer our principal in just a short time. But it was the attitude. It was that attitude of this is good enough. Listen, it's not good enough unless it's your very best. Amen. Now, I understand. It may not be where I hope that it is someday, but it should be the very best that it can be right now in this moment. And anything less than that, I believe, is a sin against the Lord because I'm not giving him my very best. That's not an excellent spirit. Never let good enough be good enough. Two thoughts here. Number one, understand limitations, but don't be satisfied with them. Understand limitations, but never be satisfied with them. Secondly, be unrelenting or unwavering in the face of danger. Don't be afraid to make hard decisions. Do it with a Christ-like spirit. Do it with a sweet attitude, but do what needs to be done. No one likes to let people go. No pastor likes to have to fire people. But if I can't coach them up and lead them on and inspire them to become more than they are, and their attitude is, well, this is just good enough, pastor. If, I, if that's their potential, then shame on me for not being satisfied with their potential. But if it's not their potential and not, not willing to grow to their potential, then, then they need to move on. And so be able to be willing to make those hard decisions. Number three, um, you know, have, a, have an extraordinary relationship with God, have an extraordinary resolve for God, and then have an extraordinary realization of God's will. Understand the will of God. Accept God's plan, purpose, and potential. Learn to let God be enough. We love Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? But what's the, what's the lead-in to that? We only call it, young people claim that as their life verse all the time. I can do anything if I do it in Christ. Now, Paul said, in whatsoever state I'm in, therewith I've, I've learned to be content. If I'm hungry or full, if I'm cold or comfortable, if I'm broke or if I've got money in the bank, I have learned to be content in my walk with God. I can do all things through Christ. I can be content whether I'm in prison or whether I'm on the mountaintop in Christ. It's the context of the passage. 
And so when we look, I'm just saying this morning, have an extraordinary relationship of God's will. If, if I know that it's God's will for me to be going through a time of suffering, then I can be content with Christ in my suffering. Hurricane Harvey wasn't fun for us. The only thing that didn't flood and have to be redone in the whole church was the auditorium and the foyer. Ten families had their house flooded, including us. We had, no one had flood insurance. I moved into my house about 18 months before, checked with the neighbors that had lived there since the subdivision had been built, and they said, I said, they said, I don't need flood insurance. You got flood insurance? He said, he said, I, well, I do, but I wouldn't worry about it. I've been here since the house was built. We've been through several hurricanes. We've never seen the water get over the curb. First day of Harvey, church floods. Third day, after 50-plus inches of rain in three days, our house got wet. I'll still be paying for that for 30 years. But the church, I literally sat on my phone in the lobby for three days being called from pastors all over the country that I'd never heard from, that I'd never talked to, that I had no clue who they were, have no idea how they got my name. And I sat there on the phone and gave them instructions and addresses and what they could do to help. And God paid for the entire rebuild of the church without us taking one single offering for our own church for its refurbishment. And it's not because I've got a big circle of friends. I'm the introvert. I'm just saying this morning, have an extraordinary relation of realization of God's will. Accept God's plan, purpose, and potential. If I know that this season of suffering or season of disease or season of attack is God's working or the devil's response to his working, I keep my focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm passionate about him. It doesn't mean that I don't tend to the needs elsewhere, but my focus and my passion is not on the problem. It's on the person of Jesus Christ. Two thoughts about this. Number one, I would say God knows how much he can handle. He knows. And then secondly, God did not give everybody the same potential. So one quick illustration. I'll try to wrap this up very quickly. I'm going to go to lunch. I had a guy, when I, I ran a boys' home for five and a half years. I was a, a youth pastor, ran a boys' home, helped start a girls' home. It was kind of a painful process getting through some of that stuff logistically. But I had a guy, the pastor hired to work with me with the guys at one point, and, and I, he's this big, tall guy. He's very intimidating, and he is so frustrated. I'm sitting in my office one day, and I can hear him just chewing the guys out. And he comes storming into my office, and he says, Brother Dave, he says, I can't. Oh, these guys are driving me crazy. I said, wait a minute, Wayne. I said, I just listen to everything you're talking about with these guys. They're 13, 15, 17-year-old boys that were here because it was either here or being turned over to the state or going to juvie. They're not here because they love Jesus. And you are demanding from them something that would be demanded of a Bible college senior. You're frustrated with them, and they're frustrated with you because you're demanding something from them that they do not have in them to give. You need to adjust your expectations. And sometimes as pastors, adjusting our expectations to a person's reality might be the very thing that saves them. God didn't make everybody with the same level of IQ. God didn't make everybody with a voice that we want to hear sing. God didn't make everybody with a talent to play instruments. But God gave everyone a talent. Our job is to help them discover what that is and to reach their potential. And if they're reaching their potential and we're reaching our potential, Jesus is pleased, we're at peace, and God is glorified. God did not give everyone the same potential. Three, three, three thoughts quickly about that. Potential reached is success. Potential reached is success. Number two, our job, as I stated, is to help others reach that potential as we strive to reach ours. And then three, if I can't accept this truth, I will always feel unfulfilled and frustrated. If I can't accept that, I'm, I'm going to live a life in ministry of frustration and unfulfillment. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 7 in conclusion says, He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Do I have an excellent spirit this morning? Passionate service will produce great success or lead to catastrophic failure. I'm either going to live lashing out in anger or I'm going to live compassionately loving and leading. 
Passionate about ministry on some level, yes. But the real passion, my passion should be for Jesus. It's about relationship with him, guiding others to relationship with him. The service happens automatically. One of the things that Brother Will brought uh, Tim Potter in, one of the great things that he said, and I don't think I'll ever forget it, is that churches weren't really planted in the New Testament. You never see the Apostle Paul go into a city for the purpose of establishing a church. He went to preach the gospel. When people got saved and baptized and started being taught, churches organically formed. Because that's what churches do. Why? Because I can't build a church. He has to build it. He builds it when we do what God gave us to do. When he does, he's glorified. And uh, let's close in prayer, Brother Will. You can give us instructions from there. Father, thank you for our time. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just meet with us. Lord, continue to build these things in our heart. Thank you for this week and all that we've heard. And I pray that you would help us to be encouraged and help us to make application when we get home. In Jesus' name, amen.